Hello, Lionel Burney here, and this is my postcard from Strada Bianca. It was my first trip to see the White Roads, and I had a very enjoyable couple of days travelling around Tuscany with Simon Gill, our resident photographer. We sampled the Tuscan wines, the famous fagioli, and of course, the Bistecca alla Fiorentina. My only regret is that I didn't have my bike with me, because although undoubtedly tough, the White Roads look great fun to ride. And the countryside... Well, everyone knows Tuscany is absolutely beautiful, but there were moments when I looked across the landscape and I realised I was holding my breath. One day I'll go back and I'll ride the Gran Fondo, which is held the day after the races. Anyway, this is the first of two episodes this week. We'll have race analysis and reaction from Strada Bianca and Parry Nice with Richard Daniel and me later in the week. But if you'd like to be transported to Tuscany for an hour or so, join us on the road. Because neither Simon or I had been to Strada Bianca before, we felt we had to do a full recon the day before the race, and so you join us on the outskirts of Siena, trying to get ourselves organised. We've uh, had a, hopefully got all of our mistakes out of the way the day before race day haven't we what's happened so far when we left Florence this morning we forgot the paperwork we needed to be able to take our hire car out of the overnight parking garage so you had to run back to our apartment to get it and then after a very pleasant pizza in the uh, Piazza del Campo in the centre of Siena Simon you left all of your accreditation your photography bib the envelope containing basically your passport for tomorrow's races on the table under the bill and you had to run back and get that so you the you're getting the getting the steps in this morning i'm getting i'm up up to twelve thousand already um <laughs> it was the pizza it it although delicious it did make me quite tired and forgetful first time in the centre of Siena Simon what did you make of it I mean it's it's absolutely beautiful it's everything that I kind of hoped it would be to be honest very quiet this morning or this afternoon as it is now it feels out of season it's a lot colder than I had hoped it would be it feels almost like Belgium the air temperature doesn't it although it's dry and tomorrow the forecast is to be uh, quite a bit warmer fingers crossed um, but the combination of the sort of wintry weather and the out of seasonness doesn't feel like a major bike race is going to finish in that square tomorrow they haven't put up the finish line stuff yet there's no huge signs that the race is only 24 hours away yeah no obvious signs but there was some there was some activity there was some people sort of scurrying around and early signs of stuff starting to happen and yeah i did i, I wanted to find the What's the name of the climb up to up to the square? I don't know. The final climb. You mean the very final the climb, the, yeah. the very narrow yes. um, street? It's got a strange kind of tiled surface almost, hasn't it? The, yeah. the, the lots of the the square and the roads approaching it are that worn 
by feet, people walking over them. I guess they've got a sort of slightly shiny finish on them. Um, that pops into the top of the piazza, doesn't it? And then they ride round to the line. But you didn't manage to find it? No, I thought I'd, once I'd been back to collect my accreditation from the, the pizza shop, pizza restaurant, pizza restaurant evening... <laughs> Um, no, I, I ran off thinking I'd be able to um, nip down there and then cut across back to where we'd parked. That was an error because um, it turns out the square is on, on obviously on top of a sort of a hill and um, all the roads leak out away from the square but they're not interlinked at all. So I ran off down a road, worrying that you were sat in the car, sort of tapping your foot, getting more and more annoyed. And then I realised that I'd basically gone the wrong way entirely and had to run back up the hill, back to the square, into the square, along a bit, and back down towards our car. don't know what gives you the impression I'd be annoyed, Simon. This is a new me. I'm totally zen now. What will be, will be. Um, it's my first time here at Strada Bianca. I've never seen the race live before. I've never seen the white road, so I'm really keen to get out and uh, actually touch the surface of the road and see what, the, what they're like. Um, we are, well, first-timers here. It's incredible to think, really, that this race has... Uh, got the kind of reputation and feel that it has i mean it feels like it's 100 years old and i think sienna and the roads that they use are entirely responsible for that it doesn't feel like a modern race um, simply because of where it's set so we're going to do our homework today and go and drive the course because i really don't know it other than from watching it on the tv i don't know particularly where it goes i know it goes down to montalcino to the south of sienna i know it crisscrosses it's a sort of figure of eight loop for the men's race and the the women's race is slightly shorter so we want to follow the map make our preparations for tomorrow and just come up with a plan tonight we're doing our race recce and we'll set our objectives accordingly i think depending on how easy it is to get from one section of white roads to another so should we get in the car and yeah. go and uh, well, this is all new isn't it because normally we we go to belgium together or at the tour de france you're you're you've got years of experience and you you you've kind of worked your way around uh, the roads and your knowledge of them is pretty good but here we're we're both going in pretty blind really so it's going to be for that reason it's it's exciting i think yeah it is exciting um the thing is you can get it wrong even when you know where all the roads lead to um that's what makes me feel a little nervous um but i think if we come up with a simple plan that we can follow tomorrow that's the objective but um I, today i'm just more interested to actually go and put my feet on the white roads and actually touch the surface and and just find out exactly what it's like following the pink sign Simon the race arrows already out of course for tomorrow and we must be coming up to the first sector of the white roads now yep I think you're right we've just been through a little town called Rosia and we've just taken a, a sort of sharp turn into a 
pretty pretty small road which is going towards the countryside and according to my map Lionel it's sector one coming up I wonder if we can drive it today the race vehicles are diverted away from the gravel sections on race day so we uh, we'll need to work out where all those cut-throughs go as well. But I think today we should be able to drive onto the sectors. We'll see. Do you think our car can handle it, though? That's the question. Um, well, I was given a choice by the hire car company, and I opted for the Italian brand, the Lancia, that we're in. Um, but the lady at the parking garage was a little bit disparaging about the car this morning, she wasn't she? It, she called it a Lancia Grandad, didn't she? She actually said it was a nice car for a woman, which I'm not really down with that stereotyping when it comes to car ownership. I think it's outdated. I think it's a nice car for anyone. It's a hybrid as well. That's why I chose it. Um, I personally think it really suits you. <laughs> <laughs> I have been driving like a granddad though today. Um, I think with each year I get older, my average speed comes down about five kilometers an hour. And we've only been beeped at probably, well, we're anyway, at least in double figures today. Um, That's just driving in Italy, Simon. If there's a few cyclists out on the course today riding, perhaps following the pink routes as well. So um, I've been very aware of other road users, Simon. Yeah. Um, but uh, being beeped at in Italy is just normal. When you drive around the towns, naively thinking you're in the right lane no one's in the right lane there's no such thing as the right lane you can go in any lane and take any exit it seems to me it's just a free-for-all so it's, i think my driving the, is it's the indecision that's upsetting me the last the last junction we came out of sienna at <laughs> i could read your mind there was so many there was a yes then there was several no's then there was a quick yes then there was a few more no's and then just was it was just about to be completely unsafe to go you decided to go oh left here we go this here we go it. on to the it. on to the first section we'll stop and have a look at it i think Well, he had the right idea, didn't he? He was on a mountain bike with lovely fat tyres, making very light work of the gravelly section here. We're at section one, La Vidrita, 2.1 kilometres long, comes 17.6 kilometres into the race. Here comes somebody with the right idea on a proper road bike. It's slightly downhill onto the section from the main road, isn't it? And how would you describe it? It's not overly gravelly, is it? It's just... Uh, Someone's unfinished driveway. That is exactly what it's like. It's like an unfinished driveway, just waiting for maybe the paving slabs to go on the top um, or another load of gravel to be tipped onto it and smoothed over. But they're unmistakably white, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Yellowy, white. yellowy white. Yellowy white. Yellowy yeah. white, but... Uh, I think they get more dusty than this as... Well, yeah, when the, the whole peloton comes through, throws up a lot of dust, and then the, the following cars as well. Um, but it's the countryside stunning, isn't it? Tuscany is beautiful, has to be said. 
we are uh, guys from Alba in, uh, it, in uh, north of Italy and uh, we are here for the Gran Fondo yeah, for, uh, on Sunday and uh, we are trying the, the, the road because for me it's the first time uh, here in Siena. And, uh, so you guys are going to ride on Sunday but are you going to watch the race as well tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, sure. We are here also for the race of uh, pro, 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 pro cycling. And from where you are in Italy, do you have a home rider, a local rider who you'll be supporting? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a Matteo Sobrero from uh, uh, Bike Exchange, and he's uh, from uh, near to, to Alba. Uh, yes, we are here also for him, of course. And what have you made of your first experience on the Strada Bianca? Uh, it, it's good. So uh, it's, uh, it's uh, very hard. It's very hard. Have you ever ridden the... My the hands uh, hurt. Your hands hurt? Yeah. You need to wear gloves, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> you're right, but <laughs> the first time I was uh, run, so I, I forget it. And, okay. Have you ever ridden the Pave in uh, Belgium or France? No. 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 So you can't compare between no, no. the white roads. But it's a beautiful race, no? Yes, yeah, of, yeah. Course. of course. And who's going to win? Yeah. Ah. Alaphilippe. Alaphilippe, wow, the Italian is going for Alaphilippe. Okay, well, good luck on Sunday in the Grand Fondo and enjoy the race tomorrow. Simon, sector one is just the antipasti, isn't it? A little plate of maybe some ham and cheese. This is the Prima Piatti, the the first of the main courses really section two 5.8 kilometers long and the thing that surprised me I, I mean i knew there was climbing but this is basically a gravel climb isn't it it goes on for a long while twists and turns up through the trees the surface in places is really very gravelly um more quarry than unfinished driveway i'd suggest yeah we've up, up the stakes a bit here and yeah you can hear it you can hear it under my foot it's they're big lumps it's got it's got puncture written all over it isn't it not these days not with their super tubeless tires i'm straying into service course territory here which is really uh, outside my comfort zone but i mean the bikes these days simon they're incredible um they can cope with anything it's whether um whether the riders all stay together in one peloton here i think this explains why when we come to the tv coverage the race is already split to pieces it really there isn't a kind of 100 kilometer lead in to the first section of cobbles or um, that we might see at uh, the tour of flanders or peru bay we're straight into the business very early on okay the first sector is not particularly difficult it's not very long but this one it, starts to shape the race already and we're only 25 30 kilometers into the race and when you think that there are sectors later on 11 and a half kilometers long 11.9 kilometers long and i think it's why the very best riders gravitate to the front eventually last year we saw that stellar group didn't we of matthew van der poel wout van art egan banal julian alaphilippe Tadej pogacar tom pidcock the galacticos and the Galactico of the future, plus Michael Gurgel, of course. Seven riders that were head and shoulders above the rest. And uh, 
I wonder what we'll see tomorrow. Saturday morning, the sun is shining in Siena. Just below me there is the football ground. Chiro, you know me, I love some football, Italian football especially. Uh, just the heartbeat of football really, the soul of football I think is, uh, is, is in Italy. Um, the one and only Chiro Scognamilio from La Gazzetta della Sport here. We've just watched the women's race roll out. Uh, how important is it? Giro, that there's an Italian in the rainbow jersey. She took pride of place at the front as the bunch rolled out. Elisa Balsamo. Well, I mean, uh, it's important because also in Italy, female cycling is really, really increasing. And uh, maybe the best team in the world so far, Trek Segafredo, you know, have Italian sponsors and also some strong Italians as Elisa Balsamot, but also, for example, uh, Elisa Longo-Borghini and also Letizia Paternoster, that is a world champion on track. So, I mean, it's increasing. And the men's race will leave in around an hour and a half or so from now. Um, this is a fantastic race. It's my first time here. I've watched every one on the TV, but I've never actually been to Strada Bianca. I've never seen the white roads before. My impression yesterday driving the course was that this is an old-fashioned race, but for the modern era. I mean, how did the whole event come around? It's 15 years ago since the first edition. It was held in October, the first one, and then they moved it to March. I mean, it was a stroke of genius because it anticipated the direction cycling was going to go in five, six, seven years later. How did they do it? Yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, it's something that uh, put together, in my opinion, the old-fashioned cycling in a certain way, but at the, cert uh, at the same time, it's extremely modern. And uh, it's not a case that uh, the majority of cyclists consider this race as a kind of sixth monument. Uh, it's not surprising because here we have marvelous landscapes uh, put together. Uh, it's a kind of university of cycling in just one race because if you consider, you find everything in this race. Uh, you find new roads, old roads, uh, climbing, uh, descent. Uh, you have to be technical, but also you have to be uh, very resistant. So if you win... Uh, Strade Bianche, you are, you can be considered a truly champion. And Lionel, uh, also, uh, it's also true that we are not near the sea, but it's also true that we are not near the mountains. So, also for me, it can be considered a good compromise. A good compromise, indeed. I mean, the list of winners just tells you what kind of race it is, doesn't it? I mean, Fabian Cancellara won it uh, the first time it was held in the spring, and in recent years, Julian Alaphilippe, uh, Wout van Aert, 
Matthew van der Poel, really the, the stellar one-day riders have won it. And it just proves that you don't need a classic to be 260 kilometres to be difficult. What surprised me most on the course yesterday was how much climbing there was. And also, you mentioned the descending, how much descending there is on gravel. I mean, it's really technical and challenging uh, as a course. Um, one other thing that's happened this year is Tirreno Adriatico has changed the dates slightly. What's the reason behind that? Because now it doesn't overlap with uh, Paris-Nice. It completely clashes with Paris-Nice. They're in the same slot. I mean, uh, the intention was that normally, uh, I mean, Tirreno Adriatico, it's a world to race and uh, almost all world to races are in the weekend. So in this way, uh, Tirreno Adriatico can also end in the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. And uh, now towards Milan Sanremo, there is a race as Milan Torino on Wednesday. So riders uh, who have chosen the Tirreno Adriatico also thinking about Milano Sanremo uh, have as another races uh, to uh, finish the preparation to the first monument of the year. It probably changes that age-old question, which race is better to prepare for Milan San Remo, Paris-Nice or Tirreno Adriatico? I mean, in you know, there's, there's things to be said in favour of both those races as preparation, but the thing about Tirreno Adriatico was that it was went on till Tuesday, so there was a little bit less of a gap between the end of the race and Milan San Remo. But as you say, Milano Torino fills that gap. I mean, if you were a cyclist, Chiro, which race would you choose? Because Paris Nice finishes at the beach and Tirreno Adriatico starts at one beach and finishes at another. And so you have already the answer. I mean, in my opinion, two, two beaches are better than one. So <laughs> I, I, I have only a choice. I can definitely uh, choose Tirreno Adriatico. Lastly, before the men's race gets underway, the couple of absentees that are notable, Wout Van Aert is racing Paris-Nice instead, and uh, Tom Pidcock not here for Ineos. Do you have any intelligence on why those two riders are uh, not here on the start line today? I mean, Van Aert, it's certainly for a question of his preparation. Also, he also skipped the world champion cyclocross. Maybe I don't. I'm not sure that he would have won, but there were good probabilities. But uh, he, he wants to be at the best shape in April for Flanders and then Roubaix, and so he changed a little bit his preparation. Uh, Tom Pickcock maybe had some physical problems and gastroenteritis, if I understand well, from the Ineos. Uh, from the Ineos team, but uh, so far is confirmed for Milan Sanremo, and uh, I think that a rider as him can be uh, also without this race is competitive on Saturday 19 March. Saturday 19 March, that's Milan Sanremo day, isn't it? That's the, the really big one of the Italian spring, isn't it? And I guess everything leads from here to there now. And uh, it's the only monument that finish near the beach. Don't forget, so uh, if you ask me which is my favorite moment, dear listeners, you have already the answer. Brent Copeland is general manager of the Bike Exchange team. He's South African, but he's lived in Italy for years, up north in Como. We spoke at the start about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the continuing impact of Covid on the riders and staff. 
the chase for world ranking points and the beauty of Strada Bianca. So Brent, uh, tell me about how the season's been going so far for your team and uh, what kind of shape you're in here today. Yeah, it's been a it's been a good start to the season with uh, with two fantastic victories in Saudi with Grunebergen. Uh, Dylan was fantastic there, and that's exactly why we brought him onto the team to to break the ice, so to speak. So we were very pleased with that. Um, it's it's a difficult season to manage. I must be honest. You know, the pandemic isn't over yet, and uh, we're still having some COVID positive cases within the team, staff members and riders. So it's difficult to put put a team together and uh, the performance group together with uh, Matthew White. Uh, have have to be on top of their game every day because it's a continuous uh, case of musical chairs and moving riders around, and it makes it difficult to to put a 100% competitive team together. Um, but we're pleased with the with the team. We're very pleased with the way things are going, and uh, I think it's just great to be back on the road, back at the races, and it's fantastic to see public on the road. You know, that's uh, it's just lovely for everyone. Um, unfortunately, we. We have this uh, this war that's going on, which makes things surreal. You know, we're here to celebrate uh, uh, public back on the roads for cycling, but in the context of things, it's uh, it's unfortunate to see what's happening in the world. It, yeah, it really is. I mean, sport is a diversion from what is going on in the world, but with it being so close and with the peloton, you know, having riders from Russia and Ukraine within it, I mean, it's impossible to block it out I suppose really I mean is, is it something that the riders are talking about around the dinner table or in the team bus is it is, you know what's the kind of awareness of um, the situation and what's going on and, and I guess how close to home it feels it's it's definitely a conversation that comes up Lionel you know it's uh, at the end of the day you can't block it out of your mind it's it's reality um, but like you say, I think sport is a way of deviating away from, from that reality sometimes, which does help. Um, but at the end of the day, you always come back to reality and uh, the conversation does come up. Um, we here to get the job done and to, to get the racing done and try concentrate on the job. Um, but that's not easy when you've got such a, uh, a complex situation and an unfortunate situation happening within the world, you know. Um, you get into the job, you get the racing done, and you celebrate uh, being back at the at the races. You take a step back from that, and you you realise that uh, uh, in the real world uh, you got a, a bigger situation that's going on. And like you say, there's a lot of riders that are from Ukraine, a lot of riders that are from Russia. Uh, sanctions that are going on uh, for the Russian team, so it's uh, not an easy situation for for everyone. Yeah, it does feel almost. A facile question to ask in given the context of what is going on on uh, the other side of Europe but um, I guess you know everything has to go on really I mean that it, it's a case that the, the the races are on and everyone has to sort of be focused on the races while they're taking place true um, and that's why you know we try keep our riders and the group within the team um, concentrated on the job at hand uh, even though you can't keep that away from reality but we've got to concentrate on what's happening because life goes on and things go on so um, you know with regards to points it's something that all the teams are looking at and it's it's it's, uh, it's something that you're always doing calculations for but 
at the same time, it's not an easy one because uh, with the pandemic going on, it's, it's you know you got riders that are symptomatic that are COVID positive and can't come to races, and you you're not gaining points from those riders, which is unfortunate for some teams. But like everything in life, you got the other teams that are looking at coming to looking for a world tour license and they're saying well you know we're getting the point so you've got to look at it from their point of view as well are you concerned at the moment i mean you're getting sucked into the battle for those license places aren't you but it's not as straightforward as you know one team having a license taken away and another uh, getting it because the teams that are in pole position to take world tour licenses still have to meet other criteria so it's not just a sporting battle is it it's a it's a uh, a logistics battle as well it is um, we're not concerned about it for the time being you know we concentrating on the goals and um, expectations that we put down at the beginning of the year and we don't want to uh, take our minds off that so we're working towards that all the time uh, you do continuously hear a lot of teams and uh, you see a lot of it in the media uh, talking about the points so it is a discussion point that comes up every now and then um, and I understand the concern because at the moment you can't say that it's a fair playing ground for everyone because, uh, like I said before, you, you might have a top rider that's goal was to get points at a certain race and gets COVID positive for some unknown reason because in our days it's really difficult to understand how we pick up this virus but it's almost become like a flu. So you have a top rider that you, you're counting on gaining points and it gets COVID positive, can't go to the race, you lose those points and that becomes more um, a situation of, of being luck than it is of performance. You know? So it's not a fair playing ground at the moment. And just lastly on today, you, you've got six riders starting today. Uh, uh, is that because of a COVID situation in the team? Yes, uh, we had the unfortunate case of Jan Maas becoming COVID positive yesterday, um, so we couldn't get him to travel into the race, and with it being last minute, uh, we didn't have a reserve to flee in that space. So that's happening often, you know, it's happening with all the teams. Uh, 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 there, there's communication within within all the teams of this situation, and you know every team's having the same problem. And uh, what's the strategy today? I mean, uh, hopeful of being involved in the later stages. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've come here with Michael Matthews, who's in really good condition. He's never ra- ridden this race before, uh, although it's a dream race for him. So um, it's a race that we've built the group around for him and. Uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation to, to know how the result's going to come out because the first time of doing this race is never easy. You either really do well or you're really unfortunate and, uh, and you don't have a good day. So um, we're excited about it and Michael's excited about it and we've built a team around him. We're looking forward to getting a good result with him. So fingers crossed for the best. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros.
This episode is supported by our title sponsor, Super Sapiens, as all of our coverage on the cycling podcast is. Super Sapiens is a system of continuous glucose monitoring to help you adapt your energy intake to maximise your training and racing. After talking to a number of experts, coaches and riders who've used the system, I gave Super Sapiens a go last summer and the results were quite surprising. In fact, they contributed to me making some small but effective changes to my diet. And I'm going to talk about this in more detail later on this year. But for now, if you'd like to learn how Super Sapiens can give you the knowledge to fuel more effectively for your own body type, go to supersapiens.com. I was looking back at the history of Strada Bianca in the days running up to the race. This year's edition is the 16th for men and the 8th for women, and it's established itself as a true classic very quickly. A look back at the previous winners perhaps explains why. Fabian Cancellara, Philippe Gilbert, Lizzie Dijgenen, Anna van der Bregen, Julian Alaphilippe, Annemiek van Vluten, Wout van Aert, Matthew van der Poel. But one thing really stood out when I look back at the previous results, particularly with what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. That first edition in October 2007 was won by the Russian rider Alexander Kolobnev. Sharing the podium that day in third place was the Ukrainian rider Mikhailo Kalilov. I kept looking at the names and the three-letter codes for their respective countries on the list of results and couldn't quite put it together with the sense of horror at what is happening in Ukraine at the moment. It was never far from our thoughts all weekend and it did put the sport into perspective as something that can divert the attention for a couple of hours while we grapple with our own sense of helplessness. I like Jurgen Klopp's recent quote about football being the most important of the things that don't really matter. Bike racing fits into the same category. It matters of course because it can be heroic and moving. It shows us the beauty and grace of the human body set against some of the most beautiful landscapes. But when all is said and done, it is just a bike race. A way for people to prove their strength, dominance and superiority in an athletic sense without a need for violence. Yes, that's an ideologically pure way of looking at what can be a ruthless professional business. But for some reason, at times like this, it feels all the more appropriate to look at cycling as merely the pleasant diversion it undoubtedly is. Anyway, back at the start in Siena, I spoke to Max Chandry, who we dubbed the Super Tuscan when we featured him as part of our Giro series during the 2020 lockdown. He's sports director for Movistar, led by a highly motivated Alejandro Valverde. Oh, in this bit, Max said that Valverde was 42. He's actually a month premature with that. Sorry, us old guys don't like a year being added to the tally too soon. Well, Max, here we are in Tuscany. Paradise, as Tuscans call it. Yeah, this is it. Siena. Can't get any better, I think, as a bike race. Being in Siena, being in Tuscany with a sunny day and a bit of wind. (laughs) A bit of wind out there, yeah. yeah. Uh, One of the underestimated factors, I think. Uh, Not something that I'd really associated with Strada Bianca, but uh, quite flat and exposed in places. And I guess the wind gets trapped between the hills. Yeah, for sure. You know, everything counts when, when you know, especially a hard race like this with the with the climbing they do and the gravel and the stretch and the fighting and you know, you add on everything and then you add on a bit of wind. Everything counts, you know. So uh, it can be a factor. There is some points they're going to be quite exposed, and uh, we'll just have to see. 
you know. When you were racing, would you have liked this event? Yeah, as I was saying it yesterday to actually to Valverde as we were driving to we we did a bit of recon yesterday, and uh, as we were driving to one of the points, I said oh, I wish I wish it was a race in my days. You know, uh, it would have been a hard race for me. You know, but still, I was up there in the edge a few times. So I mean, especially this type of race, the ambience and Tuscany and Siena and the finish. You know, and Piazza del Campo makes it really special. I would have loved it. Yeah. When you're growing up as a cyclist in Tuscany, are the white roads something that people would ride on on the club rides or the the training rides, um, or do they tend to avoid them? Well, you, if you go back, you, if you go back in in my history, yes, uh, it wasn't very popular because when I had the academy in the days, I remember there's this guy called Stephen Berkey, uh, everybody knows in the British uh, cycling community. And it was pretty, pretty hard, you know, I couldn't really get going on, on the road. So what I used to do is like really funny is to, with my Land Rover, I used to put him on a, on a dirt road, put him a radio on in a training day and just try and guide him through how to get through and just get the feeling on the bike, you know. So, so we used to go out on these sessions and I used to bring all the academy uh, on dirt roads. So I used to do it a lot and I used to do it quite a bit, especially as a bike rider. There's classic Monteserra where we used to train in the days. And there's like four sides you can go up, and there's one side called Ruota, and it goes into a dirt, and you go right up to the arrows. There's like big arrows on the top, and you go all on dirt road. So I used to do a lot of dirt road in the days. I mean, this race evolved out of the Eroica, didn't it? Which is a, 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 a sportive event for amateur cyclists, all riding retro bikes and woolen, wearing woolen jerseys. I mean, you collect bikes from yeah. the old days uh, that must be something that appeals to you as well yeah yeah no i actually bought a bike just a few days ago an old trek uh u.s postal replica and uh, <laughs> i'd keep that quiet yeah you know the, the bad boys <laughs> collection <laughs> but um no it was born out of uh, out of um, eroica and brocci is uh, the organizer a very good friend of mine um, we actually did the Giro Bio, it was called the Giro Bio, it used to be an amateur Giro d'Italia and I did it with, uh, with the academy, with, with Kenneth, we had the jersey and we actually had the jersey on the, on the second to last day when we came into the dirt road. So we did a stage in Gaiole and we did all the dirt roads in the Giro d'Italia Bio. So then he gave it, the whole, I don't think, the, the whole story then he gave it to RCS and they called it Strade, they called it Eroica for a bit and they, they got the name back, all that stuff happened. But I don't know exactly the real story, but more or less that's, that's what happened. And what do you think is going to happen today? I mean, you've got somebody who could be up there in the finish, really, who could make the splits, Valverde. How's he yeah, going? No, no, we're, we're, we're up for it. We're up for it. And Alejandro's uh, super motivated. He comes from, from really good results and uh, 42 years old but still kicking like a young kid and you know yeah we can be up there yeah why not it's amazing isn't it 42 i mean yeah it's pretty amazing it's amazing it's a learning process for everybody i mean i said yesterday i did the meeting last night and i was like guys you know i mean we're here and we're with a, with a team that's made history this team has won almost everything and we're, we're the guy who won everything you know so you know, everybody needs to put the self-ambitions away and we just need to concentrate and focus on one thing and, and getting the result. I sent Mitch Docker a note asking for his thoughts on Strada Bianca. He made his debut at the race in his final season as a World Tour professional. 
He's still riding for EF Education Easy Post doing their alternative calendar of events, some of which take the riders off-road. He sent me this voice memo, and it was obvious that he was absorbing some shocking and sad news too. G'day, mate. Oh, I'm just watching the Shane Warne tribute on uh, our news show back here in Australia. Such a sad day. Um, I don't care who you are, but everyone respected him. Especially us Australians, mate. Especially me, growing up watching him. Oh, couldn't believe the news, actually. My wife told me at 3 o'clock in the morning as she was up feeding the little one and couldn't really get back to sleep. Um, Sad day. Sad day for cricket. Let's talk cycling. Strata Bianchi, um, the white roads, it's such a beautiful race. You know, it really is. This that is the that is the common theme with the Italian races. The Giro, the Strata Bianchi, they're such beautiful races. The romantic side of it is there a hundred percent. But God, it's tough. It's such a hard race. Everyone underestimates that. And me too, going to that race. I underestimated just how tough it is. This, the hills are proper. They're long and they're steep. They're just climbs. You can't really compare it to any other race because it's not like Roubaix because it's hillier. The, the sectors are much longer. They're 10 kilometers back to back. But it's just an experience being there on the white roads. It really is the whole atmosphere of Italian racing. And I do think this needs to come into the classics, the monument sort of era. I know it doesn't have the age or the prestige from the history, but this race fits. It's got everything else ticked. For me, it was just a great experience, even though I couldn't do much more than hang on and put someone in position. But it really is a beautiful race, a tough race, like I said, and I'm loving the transition of what... It is becoming. It is becoming more of climbers race coming there. And they're working out how to ride the gravel uphill. This for me is what gravel on a road bike is, not what we see sometimes in the Peloton now. This for me is what you need to do on a road bike on a gravel road. Strata Bianchi, not more, not less. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. You can get 25% off all of their products at scienceinsport.com with the code SISCP25. And yes, that does include the tiramisu bakes, which remain excellent, but it also includes the whole range of energy products for before, during, and after your ride. So that's SISCP25. Quite a strong headwind here at Sector 1 and that is Mario Cipollini riding past in a black jersey with the red, white and green Italian champion style bands on it. He's out for a Saturday morning ride on the Strada Bianca. Yeah, really strong headwind here. And another of the aspects of this 
region that I hadn't fully appreciated until this morning, really, just how much the wind can get up. Uh, it's hilly, but there's kind of a an expanse of flat between one set of hills over there and then the other set of hills on the other side of the valley. So the wind is really whipping straight down into the riders' faces here. But we have a date with Sector 2, which is quite a steep climb and we need to make sure we're there well ahead of the race so we can pull off the gravel. I'm on the second section of gravel which is over five kilometers long and climbs for much of the way and the leading group is just approaching me now a couple of the turquoise jerseys from Aeolo uh, Astana's Davide Martinelli is on the front Lillian Kalmajan of AG2R is in there and the hero of Kerner last week Taco van der Horn in there as well as a couple of riders from DSM including 19 year old Marco Brenner his teammate Leon Heinschke has actually just been dropped off the back of that group so eight in the lead and Heinschke just back in the cars probably swallowing a bit of dust at this stage one of the Aeolo riders is called Sergio Garcia sharing his name with a major winning golfer and I wonder if he had a little glance to his left as he started the bottom of the climb because there's actually a golf course at the bottom of the climb and I have to say the greens were not in the best condition Daniel would be absolutely appalled at the state of the greens surrounded by so much lush green Tuscan countryside it was uh, quite unusual to see the golf course not looking immaculately manicured uh, but there we are that's our leading group the breakaway established for the day I suspect or well, certainly the first half of the race and then some I would have thought because their lead is now over five and a half minutes over the peloton I'm really interested to see you know what sort of condition the peloton's in when it arrives at this point I suspect it will all be together but strung out a bit by this stage because we are towards the top of the climb where I'm standing on a sort of z-bend in the sunshine because the air is really quite cold. I have to say it's always good to see the leader of the cycling podcast performance of the year powered by Cassillet, classification leader in the break. Clearly, Taco van der Horn is very keen to defend that title and fend off any other would-be Cassiolet bowl-winning riders. Five minutes has elapsed now, and here comes the peloton. At the front, Quickstep Alpha Vinyl, Movistar, UAE, probably as you would expect. 
Julian Alaphilippe, probably 30 or 40 riders down, just near to the British champion, Ben Swift. And now a few riders in the cars, whether they've dropped back to collect bottles or what have you or not, uh, whether they've been dropped, it's not the ideal place to be because the dust is thrown up by the cars and uh, yeah, can't be nice breathing all that in. Well my summary of that would be that the peloton is going pretty hard but it's all under control. Just a sort of controlled hard pace being set at the front and now the last vehicle's in the convoy and we'll have to run up the hill back to our car and make our way to the next place we're going to see the race hopefully getting something <laughs> oh dear Simon is the is the dust getting in your throat it is very Ooh. delicate <laughs> very that delicate skidding car didn't oh yeah we're oh I was saying, uh, hopefully we'll find somewhere where we can grab a slice of takeaway pizza for lunch. Or just something for lunch would be nice, oh, wouldn't yeah. it? Something other than just sort of grit and dust <laughs> floating <laughs> down my throat. It's not, uh, not terribly filling, this grit and dust, is it? Um, and my, my stale, weeks-old croissant from Siena this morning has definitely run out now. Yeah, energy levels are low, but... <laughs> We'll get back up this hill and um, we've got a little break now, haven't we? We have indeed. We've got time to get over to our next rendezvous. Um, but we don't want to squander that time, do we? One wrong turn and we could be playing catch-up. So need to stay attentive, look at the road book. As always, as always. Yeah, and uh, make sure we don't make any mistakes now. That was a very nice little slice of pizza, Simon. What else do we have for lunch? We've got a quite sloppy-looking flan-based thing with onions in it. Um, it's in a it's in a container, and I know what you're getting at here because. Well, how are we going to divide that into two portions without a knife? And more importantly... Look, we're survivors. We're men men of the field. We'll find a way. I think we might have to fashion the plastic lid into some kind of blade. <laughs> that would do That's it. That's not a blade, is it? Well, it would cut a flan. You think? Okay, well... What you were also go, going to get at then is we've got something else that needs... Well, I left you in the shop to um, choose some salami to go in the bread rolls that we'd selected. And I went off to get the waters. And I, I suppose I'd assumed, which was silly of me, that we would get the salami sliced. Well, <laughs> I've got a surprise for you. <laughs> It's not a surprise, Simon, because I've already seen the salami. It's just one big chunk. 
quite solid, isn't it? it? I'm not sure even a really proper knife would struggle to get through that. So the salami sandwiches that I thought we would be able to have, we now can't have. Look, we've found a lovely picnic spot and we've got a lovely picnic, <laughs> but we've got no way of actually consuming it, really. No, unless we're going to gnaw on that salami, gnawing salami. Um, I don't. I think that's a shame. But let's. Is it in our nature to maybe go and ask someone for help? What you think that all of these other people who come to watch the race, who brought their picnics, would might have brought a knife? It's a possible. It's look, possible. They all look organised. Well, yeah. Otherwise, it's. Um, I don't know. We'll have to take that salami home with us. So I've taken the lid off the, the pot that the flan is in, and I think that's sharp enough to cut through some flan. Here we go. I'm now in charge of the microphone, so this... Ooh. It, sort of caving in in the middle. But that is two definite halves, isn't it? Now, the rule in our house with me and my sister was that one person would slice and the other person would choose which half to have. So that would ensure kind of fairness on the part of the person cutting the cake or whatever it was that had to be shared okay so i've cut that you now choose left hand side or right hand side um definitely right hand side looks more like it's going to stay intact yeah, and not end up all over my jumper it hasn't collapsed as much has it i'll tip that bit out onto your uh, plate oh, <laughs> thank you <laughs> there we go <laughs> bon appetit quick update on the flan. I can see why you thought it was onion, Simon. It does look like onion from the side, but it's actually artichoke and very nice it is too. Well, Simon, I think I deserve the first slice of salami. I've managed to slice through the salami using an old press card which now has salami on it. But that can uh, that can go in the bin now, that press card. I'm almost through. It's weird, you uh, yeah, I mean, my big, my big face, like my big face is uh, on the press card, um, <laughs> provided the cutting edge to get through the chunk of salami. Uh, I suppose I ought to take a photo of this because people won't believe that part of being a professional cycling journalist, and I put the word professional in both italics and inverted commas, uh, is that sometimes you find yourself sitting by the side of the road waiting for a bike race cutting through salami using a press card it's not happened to me before but i can't guarantee it wouldn't happen again Very windy. So tell me, where have you come from today? Yeah, we come from Slovenia, from like few places, from today hometown and some surrounding places. And yeah, we came here to support today, hopefully in a uh, in another successful race. Yeah. So you are the? Is it the Poggi team or the Poggi team? How yeah. do you say that? Uh, it's Poggi team. It's uh, today's youth team. It's. Uh, 
cycling club for uh, I would say for junior like uh, cyclist in uh, Slovenia and it's becoming yeah, more and more popular so and what's on the other side here Rog Pog and Rog is that Rog as in Roglic or not um, no Rog is actually the famous like manufacturer of the bikes in Slovenia but yeah uh, <laughs> uh, it's a coincidence that it uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the Poggy team rides rug bikes? Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, you've got your flags here as well. And uh, have you ever been to this race before? Or have you? No, for uh, me it's the first time, yeah. And have you seen, uh, been to watch today in other races across Europe? Uh, me personally, no. But like the other members of the team, uh, they have been yeah, to the nearby races. That, uh, in and what, what are you hoping when... Uh, the riders reach here that uh, your man is near the front ready for sure yeah and here like uh, during in the climb we hope that uh, he attacks and maybe gives the lead until the very end it's a long way to go from here though isn't it true <laughs> <laughs> well good luck I hope you enjoy your afternoon yeah and the same goes for you thank you We've come to sector seven and the wind is really, really strong. As you can probably hear, wind really is the enemy of our recording equipment. Even with my fluffy Gianni Savio lookalike wind shield on the top of my recording device, you're probably still getting a bit of buffeting noise, unfortunately. So I'll keep it brief. Um, trying to keep up with what's going on in the race is not easy because there's not great mobile phone signal coverage out here so I'm just picking up bits and pieces I have seen the video clip of Julian Alaphilippe's extraordinary crash the Alpecin Fenix rider uh, lost control basically the tires just slipped from under him on what looked like a downhill section of gravel earlier on in the race around 100 kilometers to go and when the Alpecin Fenix rider went down Julian Alaphilippe the world champion went flying head over heels uh, fortunately seemed to have a fairly soft landing if such a thing is possible but he landed on the grass and uh, got back on to his bike and a long chase with a couple of teammates one of whom was Mikel Honoré I think and Alaphilippe is back in the bunch a few oh, he's getting a name check there from the commentator in the car that means the race can't be far away. I'm actually on the top of a hill looking back down the course. Can see quite a long way, probably a kilometre or so, at least, I would have thought, actually, to the top of the hill on the other side. And the riders are going to come herring down the gravel track and then into the bottom of this climb up over onto the top where it's even more exposed and, I think, a pretty strong headwind. So difficult racing conditions the, the wind really has been significant today and it may well play a big part in deciding the outcome of the race and just as I say that I think this is the break still away coming into view now well I can make out four leaders and that's an AG2R jersey in the middle so that's Lillian Kalmajan there's a Bardiani rider in there so that's Samuele Zoccarato Taco van der Horn has made it into this split as the lead group has 
cut in half. And one of the DSM riders, Marco Brenner, has made it as well. Fine ride by the 19-year-old there. And just coming round the S-bend, probably, what's that gap? 30 seconds, maybe, is Brenner's teammate, Leon Heinschke. And sweeping down the hill behind him, probably about another 20 seconds back, and going considerably faster is the peloton, which is uh, quite dramatically reduced. I'll be guessing how many that is in there now. Maybe 80 riders. Perhaps that being a bit generous. And here come the leaders past me now. Kalmajan just getting out of the saddle. Looks pretty good, I've got to say quite an art to climbing out the saddle on the uh, gravel roads there is a risk of the rear wheel slipping I'd have thought Heinschke's day in the break I think is more or less over he's going to get swept up before he reaches me I think and as the peloton approaches me and the convoy of team cars snakes down the road sending up plumes of white dust floating across the Tuscan landscape which Simon described as uh, looking a bit like an unmade bed which I thought was slightly unflattering I think it's more uh, well there is a quilt like quality to the hills but I think they looked more like sort of attractive scatter cushions there goes Heinschkirt just what, 20 metres ahead of the Movistar-led bunch and a, remarkably Julian Alaphilippe is back in position A1 right at the front of the peloton that's some ride the question is will the effort of getting back into the peloton take its toll later on in the race there's still quite a long way to go from here I think it's 69 kilometres from here to the finish lots more gravel still to cover We've now got to get back in the car and head to Siena and get into the Piazza del Campo before the riders do. And that's not a given, I've got to tell you. Sola nella pace, sommessa I've made it back to the Piazza del Campo and as I suspected the place is transformed. It's come to life this afternoon compared to the rather silent cold spring afternoon we had yesterday. It's still actually very cold. Uh, around three quarters of the square is in the shade and all the smart people have gravitated to one end of the square where they can stand in the bright sunshine which is giving them a little bit of warmth. It struck me walking up here that it's almost velodrome-like the way the square goes round. It's not really a square at all, it's a sort of oval. And it is, of course, the scene of the famous Palio di Siena horse race, which takes place twice a year, once in July, once in August. And the horse race was founded by the Grand Duke of Tuscany in 1590 when he banned bullfighting, which used to take place in this square here. 
And before that, there were events called the Punya, which was basically a mass brawl, an all-against-all boxing match, um, I guess boxing, wrestling, a complete free-for-all in the square with, I imagine, hundreds of people taking place. But they've done away with that now, too. And so it's the Palio which takes centre stage twice each summer, and they lay down a very thick layer of earth to protect the horses' legs as they run because, uh, well, they wouldn't be able to run on the uh, road surface here. And 10 horses start. It's three laps of the square, and it takes around 90 seconds, and it's r the riders are basically bareback, so there's no saddle, so it's a, a test of man versus horse in a way because a lot of the horses end up crossing the line without their riders not anticipating that to happen here with the cycling fully expect the winner to cross the line with his bike the women's race have finished a few hours ago of course and that was won by Lotte Kapeki uh, she outdid Annemiek van Vluten at the finish by all accounts a really uh, fascinating finish looking forward to catching up with that at some point this evening but uh, we were unable to see that because, as I said earlier, the, G, the 4G signal out in the Tuscan countryside was a bit patchy, to say the least. What about the men's race? Well, the Poggy fans will be very happy because their man attacked not quite 70 kilometres from the finish, but 50 kilometres from the finish. And as things stand, he's approaching 20 kilometres to go. Tadej Pogacar, that is, the reigning Tour de France champion, winner of two monuments last year, of course, and by the looks of things, well on his way to win Strada Bianca for the first time. He was, of course, one of the Galacticos in the break last year. This year, he's left nothing to chance. He's gone solo. And as things stand, his lead is around about a minute and a half. Quite a considerable advantage, that. Although, as I say that, it's just come down to under the minute mark. Looks like Tim Vellens is chasing. And then there's a group behind, including uh, Alejandro Valverde and Casper Askreen. Uh, well, you'll know exactly how the race finished i don't yet so i am going to go and watch the final kilometers on a screen somewhere and i'll report back after the finish Strada Bianca may not be a monument, but Tadej Pogacar has produced a performance worthy of winning the very finest bike races. And it has to be said, this is one of the finest bike races in the world. Pogacar arrived in the square, a perfect touch of Italian drama. The riders are appearing in the corner there, the last bit of the square that is still bathed in the late afternoon sunlight almost as if the spotlight has been directed to illuminate them as they enter the square. And that is Tadej Pogacar, who has, well, he has absolutely dominated the final third of Strada Bianca. And when you consider the riders that were chasing him, Kaspar Askreen and Alejandro Valverde, even more impressive, really. They're coming into the finish now wave to the crowd I think it's Valverde who's got it I can't quite see over the tops of the crowd there at the finish I grabbed a quick word with Jonathan Narvaez of Team Ineos who's developing very rapidly into a fine classics rider indeed 
Impressive on the cobbles, working in tandem with Tom Pidcock at Omloop Het Newsblad and Kerner Brussels Kerner last week, he looked just as comfortable on the gravel, and he finished thick here. You had a very big couple of days last weekend, and another big day today. You've obviously enjoying the classics this season. Uh, yeah, I think it's funny, it's funny and hard. Hard, I've been doing well, and it was hard to ride today, the last cakes. No Tom Pickcock today, so did that make it a little bit simpler for you? Ah uh, no, it was complicated because I have a good relation with him. It was a really important race for him, and it's sad because he is not here. But next year he will stay. It's a great race for him, but then you've got a really good result for the team, even though he wasn't here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if if he was here, we will play a bit different, but. Was hard and we race really well, I think. I also spoke to Lewis Askey, the 20-year-old British rider with Groupama FDJ. His Hungarian teammate Attila Valta had an excellent day, finishing fourth, very much best of the rest. Askey was 35th and in the thick of things into the very late stages. As I saw him cross the line, I noticed he had blood on the back of his jersey from where his bloodied fingers had been reaching into his pockets for food. As you'll hear, I didn't initially realise that the crash he'd been involved in was the crash, the Julian Alaphilippe crash. Talk me through your day. This was your first uh, start at Strada Bianca. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm really, I don't know whether they, sometimes they don't get it on TV, but I'm really, really hoping they got that crash on TV because uh, that was, well, from my point of view, that was absolutely epic. So I'm hoping it looked epic on TV as well. And I mean, as soon as I came down, I, all I was thinking about was getting up as fast as I possibly could because I knew that the quicker I could get in, the easier it was going to be for me. So uh, I hit the floor and I pretty much, I think I was up before I fell down really. So, um, and then I had the adrenaline, like you say, I was bleeding all over myself and everywhere, but, um, but yeah. Well, I didn't see the crash, but I was out kind of hopping from one sector to another. So from your point of view, what actually happened with the crash? <laughs> Basically, um, we were starting to uh, roll through for some crosswinds. And uh, because of the gravel, you don't have much grip as it is. The wind just came that strong that people, we were just sliding because of the wind. Like nothing, nothing else. Literally, the wind was just taking us and push sliding us into the into the side and then once you hit the gravel on the side then you've got even less grip and then the wind pushes you more and then one guy comes down and everyone's sliding to the left and yeah there's nothing you can do about it so was it the crash the one that brought Alaphilippe down mm -hmm. okay I did see that one yeah it was it was pretty dramatic I was on Alaphilippe's wheel so um so yeah <laughs> yeah wow I mean you did uh, did well to get back up from that one it looked uh, pretty spectacular Alaphilippe obviously did the somersault yeah um, and it was, you know, a, a pretty difficult part of the race. It was just kind of going on at that point, wasn't it? Yeah, it was just starting, and I knew, like for me, I'm, like I'm pretty confident that I'm actually as fast as anyone here. Like for, if we, if it went super easy between the sectors and fill gas on the sectors, honestly, there's nothing I'm like. There's nothing that suits me more than that. And I'm really confident with my speed. Like if we, if we turned up and just said, let's have a go for a com, you know, I'd, I'd be one of the best in the world, I think. Yeah. But for me, it's just that endurance, being able to do that like continuously and do that at the end of five hours that I'm missing. I'm hoping that's something that's going to come with age. Um, but it just means that for me, I my goal in the race is to be there racing like I can win until my legs fall off. And my legs fall off with two climbs to go, but I was there at the front, you know what I mean? So I can only be happy with that, really. Having only ever seen this race on TV before, I, the thing I hadn't appreciated until we drove the course yesterday was just how much climbing there is. I mean, it's like a Tour de France stage in terms of the metres climbing. Yeah, that's, I was really impressed with myself today because, uh, yeah, that was something I, um, 
I also realised yesterday was it was a lot harder than I was expecting. I was kind of like, for me, that's why Belgium suits me so well because I'm not great when you sort of climb and then you've got to continue going. I'm really good when it's like you do that effort to hit the top and then it's a technical descent where you just cannot pedal and I can recover really well. But if I've got to carry on doing 400 watts after my effort, that that I'm uh, that's not my forte. So. Yeah, I, I realised that as well, and hence why I was actually really pleased with how today turned out. I We were flying over the sectors, and I, I saw some like people really strong that I was overtaking, and I was like, oh, okay, today today's a good day. How does that feel, yeah, when you're passing people whose uh, you know reputations go before them? Yeah, I mean, it definitely gives you confidence, because that's one thing i found here, is because uh, the biggest difference is that level, uh, the level like in depth compared to like as under 23 or whatever before. Um, the depth is a lot bigger, so... That means that, like, you you can be going full gas and there's still, like, 80 guys in the peloton and you're thinking people are easy, but actually, yeah, not everyone's easy, but people, after the years, a lot of people can be swinging and not look like they're going very hard at all, whereas me, I look like I'm about to get dropped about three hours before I do, so, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one way to convince everybody else that uh, you're no threat, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just... It's the same with training first camp. I've got a reputation now for breathing. Um, like I'm about to get dropped. They said I've never seen anyone make seen two, 200 watts look so hard. So that's that was my reputation after first camp. But uh, yeah, hopefully that'll come in a few years. Maybe I can get a bit more smooth on my pedals, and uh, that'll probably help me as well with the endurance side of things. But yeah. Tadej Pogacar attacked with 49.2 kilometres to go to the finish and Pro Cycling Stats tells me that that is the longest solo winning break in Strada Bianca's admittedly quite short history. You have to go back to the very first edition in 2007 when Alexandra Kolobnev attacked with a bit over 19 kilometres to go uh, to find anything that comes close and well let's be honest it doesn't come close does it? Pogacar's performance was in a different league and it will bring the comparisons with some of the greatest riders in the sport's history, no doubt. In fact, those comparisons are already being made. Uh, Geraint Lee on Twitter suggesting that it was Fausto Coppi-esque and I think you can see uh, parallels there. Coppi would surely have won Strada Bianca if the race had existed when he was racing. Um, Geraint Lee also said that Pogacar finished so far ahead of everybody else he had time for an afternoon cappuccino or something to that effect anyway and that is true well I'd better go and catch up with Simon I haven't seen him for an hour or so so I'll go and find out how he got on at the finish so that's all from me and it just leaves me to say goodnight Sienna We'll be back with a regular episode of the Cycling Podcast later this week. This episode has been presented by me, Lionel Burney, and Simon Gill, and it's been produced by Adam Bowie. The music was by Amala Tela.